everybody. Hi, everybody. So welcome. Uh, thanks all for coming. And to everybody who's listening online to this uh, digital and technology cluster seminar on um, creating a research agenda on automation and the future of work and automation and inequalities. So we've got three um, fantastic speakers today. First of all, Kevin Hernandez from our research cluster is going to be talking about creating a research agenda. Then Andrew Norton, who's the we're really pleased to welcome, who's the director of um, IED and author of this recent fantastic reports, uh, which we will be tweeting a link to on automation and inequality. We'll be talking about the issue of automation and inequalities. And then Patrick, who's from the Green Transformations Research Cluster here, will be talking about um, digitization and the circular economy and also about China. And just to sort of set the stage, we think this is a really critical issue and one which would really benefit from um, the powerful cross-disciplinary engaged excellence approaches that um, IDS can bring. It's it really important, not just in international development terms, but overall for, uh, in policy terms overall. And there's, but there are specific opportunities and challenges for development researchers. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand over to Kevin. Uh, can you hear me? Right. Hello, everyone. As Becky said, I'm Kevin Hernandez at the Digital and Technology Cluster. And today I will briefly speak to you about automation. So I'm going to start off by giving you a historical context of automation. Then I will very quickly speak about its rele relevance in developing context. I will introduce you to some of the work that we have done on automation. And finally, I will end with some gaps in the research on which we can possibly collaborate. So if you've read the news recently, you are likely aware of headlines and stories predicting a dystopian future for workers due to automation. Articles in places like The Guardian are constantly providing us with scary figures, quantifying the number of jobs in the UK that will be replaced by machines, warning us about, um, warning of us about the emergence of factories that replace humans in the manufacturing process. How jobs that we previously thought to be unique to humans may soon be automated as well. And some cover stories are just flat out scary. And some predict consequences like war and mass unemployment due to automation. However, looking back shows us that although there is much hype about automation today, these fears are not new. This point is often illustrated in places like the 2016 World Development Report using quotes from famous scholars and writers. Take the first quote, for example, from the world-renowned biochemist and writer Isaac Asimov, who predicted in 1964 that by 2014, humans will suffer from boredom because machines would have largely replaced labor. Or we can go further back to this quote from John Mayer Keynes back in 1931, in which the term technological unemployment is believed to have been first coined. In the same, in the same essay, Keynes went on to predict that there would be so little work available for us today that we would have a 15-hour work week. Um, yeah. However, it is not just famous writers and scholars who have engaged with the subject of automation. The word Luddite today is often misused to portray someone who is afraid of technology. However, the historical root of the word can be traced back to the early 1800s in Nottingham to a group of textile weavers who went around smashing and destroying factory machinery that they found to be problematic. Contrary to the way that the word is used, um, the Luddites were not against technology being used in the factory. Instead, they were against the process of technology being introduced as a way of automating labor that was previously high-paid and highly skilled. 
and replacing it with highly automated, low-skilled, and therefore lower-paid labor with little bargaining power. In other words, rather than opposing machines, they opposed the introduction of machines that took power away from the worker and concentrated it in the hands of small, a small number of factory owners. And concerns about the relationship between human and machine have been with us ever since. Similar to the headlines I showed earlier, the next couple of slides include headlines dating back to the 1920s. Um, in 1928, before Keynes essay, the media was already covering uh, fears that labor-saving devices were the underlying cause of high unemployment prior to the Great Depression in the US. In 1940, questions were being asked about robots that could think and whether robots replace humans in the long run. In 1956, fears of automation were so high that they would, re in Britain were so high, people were thinking that they would replace um, jobs. 11,000 standard motor company workers went on strike, saying that introduction of automation in the form of mechanization that involves the linking coordination and control of simpler industrial processes. The article went on to say that worker suspensions were shadowed by memories of the 20s and 30s, where workers persist in regarding automation as capitalism's newest device for depriving them of their livelihood. And this is just not unique to Britain. Around the same time in the US, one Cornell University professor was warning us of an inevitable counter-revolution to automation. The birth of the digital revolution added to these fears when in 1978, Prime Minister James Callaghan hired a think tank to study the job-killing potential of microprocessors that make things like supercomputers that are in your pocket possible. In 1980, the Time, Time Magazine ran an article about how robots take your jobs, and these fears have persisted until today. However, just because these fears of automation are not new and did not materialize as past pessimists expected, this does not mean that this time will be no different. There is actually much to worry about. Uh, digging deeper into how automation has historically replaced labor and tasks, we can break down modern history into three eras of automation. In the first era in the 19th century, steam power largely replaced dirty and dangerous manual labor. The steam engine was such a powerful job displacer, it even put livestock out of a job too. In fact, this is what led to the term horsepower, which means the amount of horses needed to match the energy produced by a machine. In the second era in the 20th century, electricity and advances in computing allowed machines to replace dual repetitive and routine clerical tasks through the use of software. Now, in this third and emerging 21st century of automation, technologies like artificial intelligence, the blockchain, 3D printing, are increasingly able to automate tasks we once thought were the, only the realm of human beings, like driving, transcribing speech, making predictions. Artificial intelligence is increasingly able to perform these tasks much faster and more accurately than us humans. Machine learning algorithms are now able to spot cancer faster and more accurately than human epidemiologists, for example. Artificial intelligence algorithms can even become internet trolls. They can play video games and write music. Meanwhile, blockchain technology, which many are calling the second era of the internet, is believed to have this enormous disintermediation potential. But we must remember that intermediaries are human too. Um, as many of you are probably already thinking, these three eras are Western-centered and need to be taken with a grain of salt. These eras have not been experienced evenly between and within countries. In most of the countries that people in this room focus on, dirty and dangerous work still persists for large segments of the population. And what is done digitally in the West is often still done by pen and paper in other places. 
given the so-called automation lag, it is not surprising that more jobs are said to be susceptible to automation or potentially automatable in countries de labeled developing compared to those in the OECD. The diamonds in this graph represent a percentage of jobs susceptible to automation in over 40 developing countries from a purely technological standpoint, meaning the technology exists to replace those jobs, while the bars under the diamonds represent the percentage of jobs actually susceptible to automation given local conditions. The main, the main idea here is that although a higher proportion of jobs in developing countries are susceptible to automation, there is likely to be a time lag because technological diffusion has not yet occurred, meaning the infrastructure is not there nor the know-how to make use of the technologies effectively or, and because wages are still low, meaning companies do not have an incentive to automate. In most developing countries, automation is believed to be typically technolo technologically feasible for about two-thirds of jobs even going above 80% in Ethiopia. However, in most countries, the economic feasibility is thought to be much lower, leading to lags. Um, in light of coming across a lot of abstract research of this kind, we decided to dig, to dig deeper. So this is how we have approached it. We started off with the premise that like other intractable or so-called wicked problems, automation is a complex and, multi, and has multi-directional impacts. Also, looking at the potential impact of entire countries tells us very little, since different groups of individuals are likely to experience automation differently, thus unpacking the inequalities and the vulnerabilities that make some individuals more prone or to becoming redundant than others and exposed to digital shocks in the age of automation is very important. With these ideas in mind, we ran the 2017 Digital Development Summit in March, bringing together over 150 people from several governments, the private sector, academia, and civil society. We developed a participatory foresight methodology based on personas of real people in varying contexts from different backgrounds to help participants think through the intersectionality of vulnerabilities to exposure to automation, as well as what factors may spur or inhibit worker resilience, and to help them think through mitigation strategies that take complexity into account for different, 10 different sets of actors including donors, governments, technology companies, and even think tanks like us. Non-surprisingly, our top mitigation strategy uh, for think tanks was multidisciplinary research, and that is why we all are here today. Um, so this brings me to my next point. There are some major gaps and opportunities, opportunities for us moving forward uh, for multidisciplinary research. The debate has been largely dominated by economists and Western-centered with very few studies looking at developing countries and those that do end up reproducing the methods used for developed countries, which may or may not work well in developed countries, let alone developing countries where data tends to be of lesser quality. Current studies tend to be very abstract, looking at entire countries. The lowest level of granularity at the moment tends to be looking at sectors within a country. Although these studies do a good job of scaring us about the imminent threats of automation, they do a very poor job of looking at what automation looks like for different groups of people. And these aggregate studies are promoting template designs of responses that disregard differences between and within countries. The 2016 World Development Report, for example, labels countries as emerging, transitioning, and transforming economies, and then suggests courses of actions based on these labels. Similar to how the Step Center has argued for multiple pathways to sustainability, there may be an opportunity for us to develop a similar approach to the future of work. And it would be interesting to hear what some of our colleagues at the sub-center have to say about that. 
And current studies also have a tendency to treat everyone in a country or in a sector as the same. There is a need to look into and unpack the intersectionalities. Within countries, within cities, and within sectors, different groups of people are likely to be affected by automation differently, and understanding their realities will be necessary to build their resilience. Moreover, the current debate is formal sector-centered. However, in many places that we're interested in, the informal sector is a bigger employer and job creator than the, I mean, sorry, the informal employer is a bigger and greater job, job creator than the formal sector. And last but not least, another pattern, that, another pattern is that mitigation strategies propose things like education, social protection in the form of things like the universal basic income, and changes in work practices, such as the four-day work week, are state and market heavy and treat civil society and social movements as having nothing to offer. So coming on to the sixth point here. Um, lastly, looking back at all the headlines mentioned earlier um, in this presentation, there is a much more insidious pattern in the current research and media coverage of automation. If you look closely at these headlines, they all have the following pattern. They start with a noun followed by a negative verb followed by another noun. The two nouns are always technology and human with the technology applying the negative action onto humans. Thus, the outcome of automation is presented as out of the control, the control of humans. Technology is presented as an omnipotent agent that cannot be stopped or slowed down. However, it is us humans who are the agents that ultimately decide how technology is used, for what purposes it is used, and by whom. Unfortunately, only a few powerful humans who own the means of production are currently making these decisions. If we are to overcome the issue of automation, we are essentially fighting the same battle the Luddites did over 200 years ago. And amidst all this dystopian news, in the spirit, my fellow Luddites, I will leave you with a utopian vision. Since it is up to ultimately us humans to decide how technology is used and more broadly how we structure the economy, if we are able to redefine power in the 21st century and share the decision making of how automation is used more widely, perhaps automation could provide us with the opportunity to shift our thinking about the relationship between work, human, and machine. Thank you. So that's some, some stirring words there from Kevin. Just handing over to Andrew now, he's gonna talk about inequality. Thanks very much, Becky, and thanks for the invitation. Is the mic coming across? You're hearing me? Yep, okay, thanks very much. Um, yeah, and uh, very helpful also to have that introduction from Kevin, which uh, saves me some of um, what's going to be a bit of a gallop through the issues. Um, as Becky was saying, um, I, that was published in August, um, basically based around looking at the literature and the emerging debate, um, also with very helpful comments from a number of people, including um, Becky. Many thanks for that. Um, it's a high-level look at the issues. It's going to be a bit of a gallop through, so um, as, as was Kevin's. Um, and I guess I wanted to focus on um, near future changes or changes that already had some empirical resonance or visibility at the moment. There are certain areas like, I don't know, synthetic biology and stuff like that where the disruptive potential is so enormous, it's quite hard to get your head around. But I was focusing, you know, the longer term disruptive potential. So I was trying to focus, if you like, on the nearer, nearer term. Um, and also, of course, on poorer countries. That was basically the focus of it. Um, 
to the extent that a lot of the literature so far has a bias towards looking at rich country economies and rich country labour forces. Um, I think, um, just building on what Kevin was saying, agree with um, the sense that we've been here before many times in terms of uh, generic modernist anxiety and so on. Um, I think the kind of foundational insight that suggests we are in a different era is the one about exponential change. You know, Moore's law and this notion of doubling of capacity year on year. There are various kind of corny ways of getting that across, like the parable of the chessboard, which I won't repeat right now, but I'm happy to share if anyone wants to hear them. But um, I think the easiest way to get your head around that is that the AI experts themselves in the early 2000s, around 2002, 2003, were saying we wouldn't see autonomous vehicles in their lifetimes. So they were pushing that out 30 or 40 years at that point. And of course, they were completely wrong, but they were the experts. That wasn't policymakers, that was experts. So there's something fundamentally very hard to get your head around in this wave of technological disruption. And it is that thing about what drives the pace of change. And there's a whole debate about whether Moore's law still applies and all of that. But um, I think that's, um, that's what kind of gets inside your head when you start looking at this stuff and thinking about the pace of change and the implications of change. Um, as Kevin said, a lot of the futurology is kind of flaky and kind of bouncing between dystopian and utopian futures, polarized and stylized, and I'll probably be guilty of that myself on occasion, but um, trying to ground it a little bit. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is I think the framing device you use, there are multiple that are possible. You can talk about, I know, um, AI, robotics, uh, 3D printing, blockchain, etc. But um, and digital, of course, is the other big framing that the World Bank chose. If you choose automation as your framing, which I did and Kevin did, then there's a kind of implicit focus on things that used to be done by humans being done by something else. So that gives you a sort of implicit way in that ten maybe tends to look on the downside, whereas um, the digital narratives tend to look more at enhanced capability and so on, not always. Um, but just to be aware that the way in which you frame it has implications for how you'll get through it. So um, I think a careful reading of the literature at the moment supports certain um, basic conclusions. Um, disruption to the world of work on a global scale, much more visible in the north and the south at the moment, but definitely spreading and um, on a formidable scale, on a scale that, that um, gives you pause for thought, at the least. Um, erosion of jobs in manufacturing, even where manufacturing output is growing, that's pretty well established. The data from China, huge growth in manufacturing output, decline in jobs over the last 20 years and so on. Um, increasing impacts on agricultural productions and supply chains, many of those I think are at early stage and that includes things like the impact of digital management on supply chains, um, but a range of other things that we can get into um, as we talk through this. Um, mentioned synthetic biology earlier, which will have an impact across a range of crops and already does. Um, and then accelerating impacts on services and retail. Um, the literature on retail is huge in the north, the Amazon warehouses and so on, and um, are a sort of uh, stylized cliche of automation. Um, not so big in the south, but the impact on services already 
pretty extensive. Um, I think Professor Mark Graham was at your event, who's done um, some really incredible work on the global gig economy that's well worth looking up, um, which is global services, um, things like Upwork.com and stuff like that, that allows people to compete for jobs like accountancy and translation, basic script writing and so on, on a global scale. So looking at inequality, um, in relation to this, um, just one thing to kick off with, which is that in countries like the UK where automation is already fairly pervasive um, and at a scale that obviously is influencing the realities that we all deal with, um, there is at the moment no evidence of a destruction of employment. Um, I think the Taylor Review found actually employment levels at, in the recent past record highs um, which is puzzling in some ways, but um, what it also found um, is a lot of rubbish jobs, a lot of jobs that are basically not very well paid, stagnation of median incomes, and this recurring theme of disempowerment in the workplace, management by algorithm, the gig economy, all of that, so a sense that these jobs aren't, aren't much fun, you know, and are potentially disempowering for workers. So that's interesting that that's what we're actually seeing in rich economies. Who knows if that'll continue? Um, but I think the inequality issues come out both of power and of income um, very more strongly for me than this sense of uh, disappearance of, of, of human work, at least at this phase. Um, a few words on inequality. Um, standard caveats here for anyone who works around inequality. The measures are really problematic. Um, anyone who studies this will know. Um, often there's a confusion about whether you're talking about global inequality or national inequality, and they um, arguably move in different directions, Branko Milanovic's work and so on. Um, and also whether you're talking about wealth or income or consumption, um, they're, all, they're all different. And all the measures are really, really problematic because of one overriding factor, which is the difficulty of accessing data about the super rich, about the top 1%, for reasons that are kind of obvious. They don't fill in household questionnaires. You don't find them on standard samples. And if you did find them, they wouldn't do it anyway. They wouldn't answer the questions. And obviously, the wealth data, all kinds of questions around that. So, you know, there are a set of caveats around that, some of which are, if you like, technology-enabled. But having said that, I picked out six kind of causal pathways which you could see from the automation field or tech disruption or whatever you want to call it through to a sense that um, there's an issue about inequality or inequality might get worse. The first one which um, has been rehearsed a lot in the literature recently, there's a recent World Bank piece on this, is the sense that particularly between 1988 and 2008, Poor countries grew much faster than rich countries. I think the OECD 2012 um, Perspectives on Development report said 83 developing countries grew at more than twice the rate of OECD countries. That's a fairly staggering figure. Um, but that was, that was happening at that point. And the general sense is that that was greatly facilitated, if not um, in many cases determined by the movement of simple manufacturing to poorer countries, which um, had some benefits in terms of, obviously, livelihoods and workforce in those countries, but also um, drove, according to most of the standard analyses, that uh, convergence between poorer countries and rich countries. So, with automation, obviously, there is a sense that that may decline 
um, fairly dramatically um, as production gets reshored. Um, there are certain areas like textiles where that's not happening yet for technical reasons, but may happen in the future. Um, and it's not only manufacturing. Becky's written also about call centers. And there are gender impacts in a lot of those areas as well. So that sense of poor countries getting richer or catching up on richer countries may be threatened by this. And um, the literature pretty well concurs on that. Um, a second, I'm going to run through the others, most of the others very quickly. The argument that um, automation will increase returns to capital versus returns to labor, I think that's intuitively fairly obvious, so I won't go into that much. Um, this process of um, providing a boost to the incomes of top-end workers, um, sometimes called superstar syndrome, that's maybe not so relevant for poorer countries, but maybe. Um, the fourth one, which I think is significant, is what will be the impact on rural economies? And you can see this in... Um, you can see this in positive and negative ways, but just going at it with a stylized pathway that's kind of weighted towards the negative, I guess the hypothesis would be um, agribusiness has been staggeringly unsuccessful in many environments in the South. It's gone bust, it's failed. Maybe um, technological change will enable agribusiness to be much more effective in environments it's not been able to be profitable in before. The kind of ways you would see that feeding through would be particularly threat to the asset base, threat to land and so on and so forth of poor people if that was happening, threat to smallholder farms and so on and so forth. Um, that might arguably be particularly the case if those agribusinesses didn't need the local labour force very much. I mean, again, we know from the history of extractives and other things that when, when businesses need local labour, not only is that um, good for local livelihoods, but it also helps with stuff like moderating the extractiveness of the takeover of, of the resource base, you know, because there is a relationship there that um, introduces a political economy that's more benign for people who, who are currently holding those assets. So, so went into that in a bit more detail. The last of the stylized pathways, which arguably could be seen as um, more extended in the logic than the others, but um, really important, um, and this relates to a lot of the stuff that was on Kevin's slide set, but is, um, and there are lots of narratives out about this. If um, in rich countries, the sort of security and meaning derived from work, communities of work, is eroded, does that drive the rise of uh, populist, nativist, nationalist politics? If so, then there are a set of fairly obvious implications for global solidarity for poorer countries, you'll have less effective multilateralism to tackle things like climate change, Trump, etc. You'll have also, arguably, closed approaches in trade, in migration, um, and you know, in various other ways as well. Um, aid as well, of course, public support to aid may be affected. So that's potentially a big one. Um, but you could ask lots of questions about that. You could say whether. There are different readings of whether that is um, a trend that um, is actually a trend. I think the evidence suggests it is, but there are different readings on that. And, of course, you could debate the significance of technological disruption as a driver of that as well. You could see it in other ways. Or you could see you know, other things as being the primary causal factors. Um, how long have I got, Becky? Just 
couple of minutes, all right. Um, okay, there's, there's tons of stuff that I haven't got to, but it's, it's probably okay, because it's probably better to go through stuff at a reasonable pace. Um, so none of this is inevitable. There are policy alternatives in all of those spaces. Um, for poorer countries, making the most of natural capital could be an alternative to the manufacturing-led prosperity path. Um, that would be greatly facilitated if there were proper global carbon markets which pay people for embedded carbon, but we're not there yet and not appearing to move towards that. So maybe that's a bit of wishful thinking. Um, but, you know, you have countries like Costa Rica making um, forest regeneration work for them through other means like ecotourism, arguably a bit boutique to happen at a global scale, but there are certainly success stories. Um, the globalisation of services that I mentioned before could provide access for poorer countries to rich country markets, which is one of the reasons why the manufacturing, export manufacturing growth path was thought to be a powerful driver of prosperity. But there are all kinds of problems with that, the um, intermediation and the risk that in a global platform everything kind of sinks to the bottom. Again, Mark Graham's work's quite strong on that. Um, and then... Obviously, there are possibilities um, around technological leapfrogging for poorer countries, and Ben's work is a lot in this space, some of which are quite powerful around energy, even around manufacturing, around communications, around agriculture. So there, there is also positive um, possibilities there as well. In terms of national level inequality, I'll skirt over the debate on education, which is enormous, but basically points in, again in two stylized directions. One is making sure that the skill base exists to engage in this global economy. And the other is all the stuff that makes people good at doing things that are complementary to automated systems, empathy, um, communication, humour, um, whatever. Um, obviously, there's a huge agenda around social protection. I think many of you, obviously, the, the universal basic income debate tends to dominate that in the North. But in fact, I think um, UBI only exists at pilot scale anywhere and in Finland. And one of the interesting things is that uh, social protection systems that, in my view, have the key characteristic, which is they allow people to work on top of getting the income, already exist at a huge scale in the South, I mean, in Bolivia and Bolsa Familia and so on. So, and even the um, UNREGA, the um, Employment Guarantee Scheme in India. So arguably, um, big middle-income countries are way ahead of the North in that area. Um, maybe, you know, that's what has been proven at scale, not UBI. But anyway, come back to that quickly because there is a point I want to make there as well. Um, there's a range of possibilities for boosting and empowering smallholder production, which um, through technical innovation, through... Um, land rights protection and so on, um, can well-structured markets govern with a social purpose, deliver micro-technologies, so would smallholders be able to keep up and remain competitive with agribusiness? So, again, not necessarily a dystopian future there, but that one, obviously important and very pol policy-sensitive. It would need measures to ensure that that happened. Um, and then the final one, and Becky's written a lot about this, is strengthening digital access all the way down the chain, um, partic including particularly um, the data on access to smartphone handsets for women, particularly in rural areas, suggests that's an, a major area, again, for policy engagement and intervention. It's a few words at the end just about challenge of taxation. Um, I was struck when I started reading around this literature, which at that point seemed to be dominated by sort of business school academics like 
Brynjolfsson and McAfee and so on, that although these guys were largely business school and private sector people, when it came to the bit at the end where they said, what can we do? What can we do to make sure this works for people? It was always basically tax and spend, even from those guys. It was always heavily social policy focused. So the question of how the tax base is going to fare in this evolving world, I think, is really critical. Um, and, you know, there are a number of questions you could ask about that. Um, OECD work, again, focused on the North at this point, points out the fairly obvious thing that, you know, we're all familiar with from headlines, that tech firms are extremely hard to tax. You cannot really see where value is created in terms of geographies, so they're virtually impossible to tax. Um, well, under, under current systems. Um, there's not much of a literature on this yet, and most of the kind of stuff around blockchain and other, um, you know, distributed ledger systems in development's often very um, optimistic and positive, but it does seem to me that cryptocurrencies pose particular challenges to national tax systems. Those systems are designed to be um, anonymous, which is an issue for tax, and they're designed to be kind of impervious to the, the state's power of vision, if you like, which is obviously also a problem. Um, I think there are real question marks over whether poor countries are going to be able to maintain their own currencies as well as this develops. You may see a wave of dollarization, maybe as rich people assets move into cryptocurrencies. But obviously all kinds of questions there about how you continue to maintain tax base. And then there's this issue also about, um, which has again come into the debate, I mean, there's a sort of comedy aspect to a lot of this stuff that's hard to get away from. The robot tax is, is the kind of comedy trope in this area. But um, it's basically about if the direction of travel, which is visible in rich countries, certainly in the Taylor Review in Britain, is towards more self-employment, the gig economy and so on, that again tends to threaten tax revenues. It tends to be hard to tax. That's for most poor countries at the moment, they're predominantly in the informal sector and the gig economy is nothing new, arguably, apart from the absence of the tech platforms. But um, maybe that raises questions about being able to tax employment in the future or income. And the final, I mean, the answers in that space, I think, are largely around um, finding ways of taxing where the sort of virtual economy meets the real economy, carbon taxes, a no-brainer, other Pigovian taxes on pollution really have to be where we go with this for all kinds of public goods reasons as well as that land taxes property taxes which McMoore from ids has written about as a direction of travel also make all kinds of sense um, there's a bunch of stuff i've got on the politics of this but maybe we can get into that in the discussion because i think i'm running over um, and i've got a few ideas as well that i've jotted down on policy research areas do you want me to go into those now yeah okay um i think just some ideas. And again, building on what I said, um, I think there's an area of research and development about the conditions under which national development strategies built on natural capital, which work broadly for social justice, as the Costa Rica model does very well, um, and how the informal sector fits within that. I think that's an important area for development, um, kind of policy research, very applied. Um, how we maintain, how you would maintain or grow a tax base, which will be critically important for making sure these changes work for ordinary people. Um, and again, what are the blockages to 
actually being able to implement uh, polluter pays taxes at scale, including ta carbon taxes, seems a, a critical issue within that. Equitable labour markets in an era of disruption, policies and regulations which strengthen the productivity of smallholder um, farmers and the viability of their livelihoods and also possibly their bargaining power, particularly in relation to their natural resource endowments. Um, obviously, there's a huge agenda around um, women and labour markets, gender issues, access to technology, access to handsets, access to skills. Um, and perhaps um, a lot more work on understanding the disaggregated impacts of this kind of change, which I don't think actually is that strong at this point. Maybe that's a big one. Final one is just um, the big one, changing nature of politics and how that affects these agendas. Um, what is the basis for effective collective action for whatever a social democratic or a left politics in an era when organised labour will be under pressure from these changes? There's no question about that. How does that get rebuilt and reconstituted? James Ferguson's work on you know, a new politics built on distribution is relevant here, but there's much else to think about. And of course, Mark Graham's work as well. So thank you very much, Becky. Sorry if I overran. So we've got a few copies of uh, Andrew's report here um, and some really important policy research areas flagged, uh, especially around the, the decent work yeah. agenda, I think. It was a kind of broad framing. So um, Patrick's now going to talk about the underpinnings of all of this and also look at uh, the circular economy and China. Yes, it's great. Thanks, Becky. Uh, thanks for inviting me to, to the seminar. It's very great um, to be here. So um, I'm um, with the Green Transformations Cluster. Uh, my topic is circular economy, um, which is basically about changing the current linear system of production and consumption to a circular system, which means uh, reducing waste, um, saving resources. Um, it's more, I come from more the environmental perspective. Um, but I've come to realize, in a way, actually, the digital revolution and the circular economy, they're basically coupled. So um, one reason is because the digital revolution will not happen. Um, well, it's underpinned by a number of critical materials and resources. Um, and the way we're using them at the moment, we're going to burn them off in a very fast time. So for example, just um, one, one example is uh, indium which is used in uh, transistors, um, in LCDs, like on um, TVs and um, laptops, etc. So the current time, like materials we have left for this is about 19 years if we don't, um, if we continue to consume in this linear fashion. So the other is, for example, lithium, which is critical for new battery and storage. There's 25 years. So some, some reports looking at this, they say, so, okay, if we, if we, we need to increase um, our recycling rates of these. So the estimate, if we increase the recycling rate to about 70%, um, that can then give us uh, an extended time by a factor of 10. So instead of 19 years, we have 190 years. So that's where the circular economy comes in. Um, the, the issue in, in relation to inequality, for example, is so far a lot of the recycling um, is done in developing countries by the informal sector. So there's an estimate of about 80 to 90% of computers end up um, being recycled 
either in China, India, Africa. And um, so, so many tech companies, because um, they're looking at improving um, the kind of efficiency of, of the system. So they're looking at automating the recycling part of it. One example is, for example, Apple, which has designed um, a recycling robot, Liam, that can take apart an iPhone in, in less than a minute. So you have what they will, what they're going to set up are kind of take-back schemes where you bring your phone back to the shop and it's all done internally in their system. In a way, this, this then means um, lack of, like, less access to digital technologies for people in developing countries because not, I mean, a large share of the equipment that ends up in developing countries is being repaired and then used. So many people, their first computer is one that's been repaired from e-waste. Um, so there's a potential conflict here um, in terms of inequality um, and access to, to resources, etc. Um, another example uh, on this um, is the, the textile sector. Uh, maybe you've seen it in the news yesterday, Stella McCartney and Ellen MacArthur. They were on the news where they talked about the unsustainability of the fashion industry and that they want to change it. And um, Ellen MacArthur, she set up a foundation not, not far from Brighton on the Isle of Wight. Um, and they're promoting circular economy, um, working with business mainly. Um, and so if the circular economy is applied to the textiles industry, um, one of the big game changers for that will be 3D printing. So maybe fast forward 10 years or 10 or 15 years, a lot of textile productions might be a very localized loop. It'll be 3D printed somewhere nearby, then it's being used and it goes back to the, um, uh, within the local loop. Amazon has um, a patent on this, and so they haven't implemented it, but if they do, this will be linked to online shopping um, with, and so my point is, if, if this is implemented, this might be very resource efficient. You might be able to reduce pollution, you might be able to save resources, but the implications for the global value chains of textiles and um, women employment in Southeast Asia, um, so these are questions um, so kind of we don't know what, what will happen to these. Um, so that's kind of the link I see uh, automation with the circular economy and there's probably other, other sectors as well. Um, now Becky also asked me to say something about China. Um, so in 2014 um, I traveled to various parts of China. We were filming a short documentary on energy efficiency um, and we went to um, a large factory in Guangzhou where they were producing um, heat pump systems. Um, it's like a, uh, a technology that can save energy in the household. Um, and there were many workers there, but one thing they had were they had autonomous trolleys that were going through the factory. So they were playing um, a little tune, so you could hear where, where, they, where they were, but like if you stepped in front of them, they would stop. Um, so it was, in a way, like a... Um, kind of an early version of autonomous cars. Um, and so I, I mentioned this to one of the managers who showed us around, and um, he said, hey, actually, this is nothing. Look at this one. And he, on, his, um, on his phone, he showed me a video. So he said, look, this is our latest factory in Wuhan, and this was fully automated. So there were no people, just, uh, just robots. 
Um, and so their, their plan was also to automate all the other factories that way. And Kevin, you had this slide up here about Foxconn, which manufactures iPhones um, in China, and, and they have uh, similar plans. So um, China is very much leading also automation and um, artificial intelligence. Um, was at a conference recently where there was a presentation by Elsevier um, with the top 10 of research institutes filing patents uh, for AI applications. And there were three uh, Chinese universities among the top 10. So they're very much um, leading leading player on this one. And at the same conference, there was a session by the um, Ministry of Home Affairs of Singapore, and they introduced um, one of their... Um, programs for border security. So the, the plan for Singapore is to fully automate uh, border control by 2025. And it's, it's not just um, kind of the face recognition and the, the scanning of passports that you can already see here um, um, at Gatwick or Heathrow, but also um, they want to have um, holograms. So if, if there's a question, can go to this portal and you'll be speaking to a hologram that answers all the questions that you might have. And um, kind of the argument um, behind this was Singapore is an aging society. We will have a shortage of labor. And so, um, and that's, that was the argument why there was this need for automation. And that's actually it's also similar in Japan, I think, um, where the um, health or caring sector, um, there's a lot of automation in that. Um, so, I think I think that that was it. And if I have, I have a couple of minutes or just one minute, um, wanted to read this short section from from this book here uh, by Pedro Domingos, the master master algorithm. Um, it's about machine learning. Um, it's a good introduction to the topic. And so there's this one section here, which is a neural network stole my job. And so that it starts, how much of your brain does your job use? The more it does, the safer you are. In the early days of AI, the common view was that uh, computers would replace blue-collar workers before white-collar ones, because white-collar work requi requires more brains. But that's not quite how things turned out. Robots assemble cars, but they haven't replaced construction workers. On the other hand, machine learning algorithms have replaced credit analysts and direct marketers. As it turns out, evaluating credit applica applications is easier for machines than walking around a construction site without tripping, even though for human, it is the other way around. So the common theme is that narrowly defined tasks are easily learned from data, but tasks that require a broad combination of skills and knowledge aren't. Okay, so I think if you're doing an MA at IDS, um, I think that gives you a, quite a broad set of uh, skills and knowledge. So yeah, it's a good choice. <laughs> yeah, thanks. What you don't realise is that Patrick is actually a hologram. Oh, I, yeah, <laughs> I just switched myself off now. Off. <laughs> so thank you so much. Those are three incredibly rich and thought-provoking presentations. So I'd like to open it up both to the floor and to anybody online who's got any questions. We need to pass it around. Yeah. Here. I'm going to go this way. 
Thanks. I guess I want to thank you all. Really great presentations. Andy, I want to give you an opportunity to just say a bit more about the, the kind of policy implications. And maybe linking to Kevin's point about at the moment we have these big aggregate studies, sector-wide studies, um, which tend to classify countries um, as fitting in a very well-banked style, classify them into one of four categories, and then you have policy by template. And actually, the reality is policy by template simply isn't going to work here. So I guess I'd like to hear from all of you, but especially Andy, not just the policy prescriptions, but does this mean a different approach to policy? And what's the role of evidence within that? Hi. Yeah, thanks for the presentations. Um, I'll pass it there. Uh, I work here in the participation cluster, and I do not know anything about these topics. So I come from a very naive, let's say, <laughs> approach to, to digital technology and technology in general. Um, but my question is how much research there is, or if there is some that you know about on the reasons behind keeping the drive of technology so, for example, specifically the one of automating all the factories in China, I'm assuming that this doesn't come with a low cost, but is it like properly, you know, analyzed that at, in the long term it will be cheaper to maintain all of these, you know, machine systems working and um, than hiring very cheap labor per the hour in very precarious conditions as it is perhaps now the majority or if it's only just like because technology has to keep evolving and we're in this positivist world that we just have to keep going and evolving as humans and thanks a lot also from my part there's a lot to think about um you mentioned six pathways. I only singled out five, but maybe I missed one. Or maybe it's the sixth one I will mention now, and you can comment on, and it builds a bit on what you said. And before, it's something that I think from a feminist economics perspective has been mentioned a lot, this is productivity trap, so that the service sector has suffered already much, a lot with just higher productivity rates in industrial sectors. And so there's a lot of pressure on labor in the service sector, most of all in the care sector. So my question then would be, is this a deterioration? We can see Japan maybe being an outlier in this data set. Countries, I think, in the global north there, we have seen a deterioration of working environments for, for women working in the care sector. And what uh, this automation process will mean for them? Is there even more pressure on them to get cheap labor out of them? Or maybe will this be then, um, um, will this be automated as well? And then just a comment, um, comment question. Um, I perceive a lot of this discourse and a lot of these studies because they are to some extent also contradicting regarding what can be replaced as a, as a political weapon to countervene like all these minimum wage standards we see now being raised in the US, is this also a tool of people in power to be used against those on the bottom rising up to demand better working conditions and how should we, we work around that? Um, 
Yes, um, I wonder if you could um, speculate or comment on any possible effects of the secular trends that we're seeing on gender relations. So if you think about like footwear or garment manufacturing, it will carry on in um, the countries in Southeast Asia, for example, where it's happening until the cheaper until the cheaper robot comes along. I mean, I think there is there is that, and there's obviously the kind of positivist technological drive as well. But it is about it's the bot is about the the, econo the economics of it. I think there will be. I've I've started writing and thinking a lot about the impact on gender relations and a, a kind of critical area of concern for us in the digital and technology cluster is about um, gender in and intersectional inequalities and the use and access to and effective use of technologies. This is a really important area of research for us. So there's a kind of obvious line where the less, because women broadly in society have less access to and less kind of, um, kind of economic, uh, less economic empowered by their use of technology, um, the jobs which come in to replace the the jobs which are made redundant, which might require more sophisticated digital skills, yeah, that's going to it's going to have a negative impact. And also, there's the question of the jobs which we're going to lose in Southeast Asia, which have been kind of roots to prosperity for well, a degree of prosperity for, for women like jobs in the garment sector or in call centres. They're just disappearing as we speak. And it's funny when you think about how quickly the garment sector automation is going to happen. I thought that was really interesting what you were saying about uh, 10 years ago that they were saying, oh, driverless cap cars, that'll take 40 years. And that w when you try and find the timeline for how quickly the garment sector, apart from the kind of thing about Amazon buying the 3D printing, when you try and find that, okay, what is the definitive timeline for this? It's really, it's hard to get answers when you do, when you start looking around for it. But I think that's going to happen sooner than we think. So... Any other responses from you guys on the on the policy issue first, maybe? Yeah, no, thanks. A great question, and um, I think it had the answer embedded in the question, but it was a good answer, so that's fine. Um, yeah, of course, um, templates aren't what you need, and there are real problems around the way um, this, these kind of stylized big policy blockbusters work in relation to that. I think there always have been, but it illustrates that. Um, yeah, I think there's one, um, about the role of evidence, there's one thing which is just about, um, if you like, a very rapid monitoring of changing realities, of kind of pulse data or data that picks up um, the change in reality on the ground. And one of the interesting conundrums about this, actually I discussed this with Becky, is certain things that are just really, really obvious and have been stylized facts for years in the technology space, like mobile phones are great for poor farming communities. There's actually remarkably little solid research on it. If you actually try and find the studies which demonstrate that, 
There are a few referenced in the WDR, but they're kind of hard to find except there. And some of the others are famously um, dodgy. So um, it's, it, there is an interesting lack of good data, even around things that you would think were very researchable, very um, high priority in policy terms. And there just isn't good evidence on that, which is interesting. So I guess that's one thing. Um, and the other thing, um, Ben, which I'm sure your work bears on a lot, but is just the sense that if you're trying to think about um, if a country has a social priority around smallholders, let's say it's a country to which the kind of yeomanry thing matters, that's not a given, but if it does, and if it wants to take that forward um, and support them with engaging in changing supply chains incredibly rapidly, which I think is a challenge, um, using blockchain or whatever else to help them with their natural resource rights and making that, um, and also micro-technology and a range of things you could pick out in policy terms. But a lot of them will require actually working closely with different kinds of um, supply chains also that deliver to smallholders as well as that, that take products from them. So it requires that engagement with um, a, a private sector that can be also directed along those social goals. And I think that's a huge challenge. I don't think we have good models for that. But it's probably essential because those are the kind of more difficult areas if you want to look at the role of social transfers in helping people through life transitions. That's pretty simple if you've got the... Well, it's not simple, but if you've got the money, it's much clearer. Um, but I think those models where you would need to engage with producer realities, livelihood realities, um, alongside changing markets and changing technologies. I think that that's a, that's a big issue. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit long. And you have a paper that's been done in the UK, Metsbrace, Lavin, Kathleen, all about worth picking up. Andy wrote a paper back in 2002 called Nets, Ropes, Ladders and Trampolines, which is about different models of social protection. And he seemed to be hinting at moving towards a similar kind of framing. I guess one of the challenges I think as an evidence community we might not be doing enough of is, is actually making that kind of framing in an available way to policymakers to actually cut through the complexity. Yeah. I think we're still very much presenting the wicked problem back at the moment rather than really helping navigate it. Sorry, I completely forgot I had this mic. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I think going off what the first question that Ben posed, um, yeah, the way that we're gathering the evidence is what's leading us to this temp policy by template. I mean, we're looking at, if you're gonna put yourself, take yourself in the hole where you're always gathering data at the aggregate level, then you're never gonna be able to see what people's real life realities are, the lived experiences. So that's, that's kind of what I hope this meeting would come to is like we can develop ways that we can dig deeper into people's lived experiences and from there kind of develop more contextual um, policy. And that's why we need a participation cluster. <laughs> Safer? Any, a few more questions? Uh, oh, sorry. There were some answers. Oh, there's some as answers. Well. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I'm just aware that we had questions on the care sector and on collective action as well, which were fairly substantial. Um, yeah, I think um, there's, in, yeah, there's not a lot of, again, empirical work on the care sector at the moment. Hunter Machigura from 
ODI is a good paper and um, kind of alarming. I don't like sort of digging into the dystopian stuff, but that does suggest all kinds of ways in which gig economy platforms can be abused, um, particularly the rating system. It's a really good um, case study of that. Um, this was South Africa and largely, obviously, um, black uh, care workers working for um, richer families, mostly white families, and um, it just really stuck in my mind that if the, if the worker is late, they lose the gig even though they've paid to go. So all the risk is on the worker. If, and also, um, they're incredibly vulnerable to the client asking them to do stuff that wasn't in the scope. So they've, they've agreed to clean the house, and oh, while you're at it, can you just do X and Y? So you read it and you think, yeah, that, that really rings true. Um, and I think, you know, again, that's a policy issue, is looking for ways in which um, sort of worker autonomy or power can be built back into that um, system. Obviously, some systems allow for the worker to rate the client, but obviously where there's such a huge power imbalance between the worker and the client, it's not going to do very much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge issue there, and I don't have particular answers at this point except to work on on those. In terms of collective action, um, I think there was another question around what happens to collective action, as I, I can't remember the exact way it was framed, but that's the way I, I noted it. Um, I mean, again, the, the Mark Graham papers have an interesting typology in relation to that. Can you deal with it with regulation, the globalization, the platforms make that extremely challenging, various other ways. Um, the, the most interesting and perhaps um, innovative is, is just hacking the platforms that really don't work for people. I mean, in a sense, can people get together and actually disrupt technically the platforms that are really exploitative and don't have protections? Um, but it is very difficult, I think, in a lot of this area to envisage collective action and envisage how collective action works. Um, anyway, that was just some thoughts. Um, Becky, there was a question on gender as well. So yeah, I, I just noticed nobody had answered Erica's question. Yeah. So, um, so why why companies automate? Uh, I think yeah, coming from a business background, I guess I'll try to have a go at this. Yeah. Like, or they just make the argument that it will be cheaper because they are kind of assuming that it will be cheaper. Like, so, kind of unfortunately, it, unfortunately, studies do show that it is cheaper. Okay. So, <laughs> it, it increases productivity, like, uh, first off, but that doesn't happen automatically. You have to make other investments in order for, for automation to be able to be effective. For example, shifting from like, using pure machines to using digital technology required companies to kind of um, change their organizational, organizational structure and become flatter. And actually took a while to show that, that machines, I mean that digital technology was increasing productivity. And this was called the solo, product, solo paradox, which was like um, this famous economist once said, we see, um, we see computers everywhere except for in the productivity statistics. So it actually took the business community a while to, to see the gains. But Ever since we have started seeing the gains, it's just been more and more. So it does increase productivity. And what, you know, obviously, um, our algorithm is never going to take a break. It doesn't go to sleep. You don't have to worry about giving it benefits. Um, it's never going to go on strike. 
So it's a kind of easier, it's an easier employee to manage than a, than a human. Yeah, just in terms of productivity, there's also um, this issue of resource productivity. Um, and here automation, and, and generally resource productivity is, is, is very low. And so automation uh, probably also will be able to increase resource pro productivity, thereby, again, saving costs, especially. It's basically um, creating more value from the materials that you use in your um, uh, production processes. So if, if costs for materials go up, if you're able to make more with less, then you can save costs, and automation um, probably uh, can help with this. Um, and then, yeah, so maybe some more questions, though. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my name is Saif Ayala. I'm in business market state cluster. Um, I'm sorry if I get your name wrong, Andy. Um, you said uh, managing by algorithm uh, at some point, and um, I keep reading um, big uh, agricultural machinery companies of the likes of John Deere developing weed spotting uh, algorithm, targeting weeds and applying herbicides and the likes. Um, you refer to smallholder agriculture benefiting from automation, agribusiness and the likes. I'm just wondering the practicality of it in a, in, a, in African context in particular where you have, you have, you have hardly have um, mechanized technology, let alone automated technologies for the application of it. And so, uh, and it kind of goes back to Kevin's point about productivity. Um, there's a there's a really nice story told in um, uh, Eric Bernielson's and Andrew McAfee's book on um, the second or the third machine age is it second machine age I forget hard to keep up. He talks about how um, the introduction of electricity into factories took 30 years to actually see positive impacts at the turn of the 20th century because what they did was they brought electricity in to steam-powered factories, but they essentially did not change the structure of the factory, did not change the way that things were managed. So they still they used electricity, but to power one giant engine at the centre of the factory. And it took them 30 years to change the way in which they managed and thought about and realised that through electricity you could have a, a workstation that was individual, every person could have a workstation. And so they, it, it, that learning process, that, that created a lag and that lag is kind of the institutional lag, you could describe it as. Um, and we've obviously heard many things about the positive and the negative impacts of digital on and automation on developing countries, but that institutional lag is one that we're well aware of. Is, it, uh, is, there, is there not a risk that the real impacts of automation on developing countries won't be direct on jobs, and, but indirect in that it will transform global supply chains around developing countries and they'll be left in an enclave whilst we carry on and see the more, more direct impacts in the West. I think there was a brief mention of um, education and how that should change considering that the, the world we're living in is changing. I'm just interested to know if anyone's doing anything already thinking about how we should 
teach our children differently? I mean, I completely agree that the reality as it is now is not of one where you see this kind of technological change in the hands of smallholder farmers on any kind of scale in Africa. Um, I guess looking at this stuff, I try not to just wait always to the dystopian and to the sense it's just going to be a wave of agribusinesses kind of sweeping away. Try to think about what alternative futures would look like that might be better. And again, it's around this issue of are we good at imagining the future in the sense that, um, you know, if the cost of kit continues to exponentially decrease, then you may reach a point where it starts to interact at least with, you know, wealthier farmers or whatever in those environments. I think that is invisible, actually. Um, but again, it's based around this notion of exponential change and the difficulties people had in the early 2000s of envisaging stuff that's now commonplace. So um, that, would be, that would be the issue. There are also, I think, certain kinds of um, small-scale technologies that are being deployed. They're not particularly high-tech, drip irrigation and stuff like that. So, I mean, there are just questions about the productivity-enhancing potentials. There are also aid agencies carrying out experimentations with using drone technology, you know, to help farmers with um, various kinds of crop management, you know. I don't think it's at a big scale. I think it's it's kind of test projects and stuff like that. So I wouldn't... I don't want to give the impression that I was saying that was a reality as of now. I was more just trying to think, okay, if there's one option, which is that agribusiness becomes much more profitable, what would be another potential pathway forward? And I do think that um, it's very difficult to be certain that things that look out of scale in uh, a poor farmer's environment now will remain out of scale in 10 years' time. In terms of what we've seen in the last 10 years, I think it's difficult to be sure of that. So that that's all really, but a good point. Um, yep, shall I hand over for the others? Yeah. So uh, yeah, the question question was raised about education, and yeah, I completely agree. Um, actually, our current education system was built more for like the 20th century, and it was based on what is called the three R's, but they're actually not really all starting with R, so I don't know why. It's called this. So reading, writing, and arithmetic are, are the focus of today's education. And this primarily was like designed to serve the bureaucracy. So it's preparing people to become bureaucrats. But unfortunately, automation is especially good at replacing bureaucrats. So we're, we're putting students through a curriculum that leaves them very prone to automation. And we need to get, we need to get away from this as soon as possible. And um, I, th I think schools from now on have to focus more on like soft skills and, and interpersonal skills and teaching things that machines are currently not good at, like creativity and this kind of stuff. And also, since machines are constantly changing the things that, I mean, the, the, the things that machines can replace are constantly changing. So you have to move away from this idea of like education, something that happens from when you're five years old to like when you're 18 years old or even to a 22 year old, but something that's a lifelong process where people are constantly retrained as machines come and take more and more um, tasks away from human.
And nobody's really doing much work linking this to the, to, to the debate of automation, to be honest. And this is something that really has to be picked on. Yeah, the WDR on digital. And actually, I spoke to a, um, uh, the head of a robotics firm at a conference in the summer. And he was, and I said, well, what, what, and he was basically in the business of automating back office jobs that were done by people in um, big, sort of big, in big sectors in India at the moment. And he was sort of making a living through automating these processes. And I said, well, do you not feel like you've got a kind of responsibility? And he was like, no, I think what the Indian government needs to be doing is training people exactly in creativity and lateral thinking and stop focusing so much on these kind of linear models of education. Um, I also think, again, coming back to this issue of increased um, digital skills and that uh, there is a danger that everything becomes more automated and it's not just about automation, it's about digitization. So an increased need for digital skills means that existing um, sort of gross inequalities and access of use of technology are going to be exacerbated. So there's a kind of emphasis on um, increasing digital skills, especially of those communities that are underrepresented in those sectors. So yeah, and I'm sure, I don't know if my colleague Tony Roberts has got anything to add about that. Thank you. I was just sat here looking at that slide that's still there about technological determinism and listening to the conversation, thinking that it was ironic that actually we're talking about this as if it's inevitable. Like, we need to just wait and see what technology does, and then we need to reorientate education to deal with that, rather than being able to step back and, as humans, take a view on what we want future technology to do and what future society we want it to take place in. Nothing. Um, no, I mean, no, nothing right now. Yeah. To keep the conversation going a bit longer regarding education, because I think this is really a key, um, a key issue, and I really appreciate um, Tony your, your comment because sometimes, and <laughs> not trying to attack you at all, but this idea of lifelong learning has been like a neoliberal idea of it's everyone's own individual responsibility to be the best you can be and so how not to fall in this trap regarding this discourse on 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 um, digitalization i think this is very a thin line we have to find out how to trap because i i see the same challenges you see but these are societal questions and we should in an open discursive manner find out what the best approaches are and maybe regarding this because we have seen such a push in 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 digitalization of the education system in a lot of places and seen it as a silver bullet and things will improve automatically because everyone has an ipad um highly questionable what i wonder now maybe bringing you back into the discussion um about resources is it feasible even given um rare earths and uh, geopolitics of rare earths to have to to fulfill this utopian, dystopian dream 
from wherever you look at it, to have a digitalized school system. You know, from, from what it needs, the input, the energy input it needs, and given the planetary boundaries we live under, is it even a feasible objective? Or do we have from the get-go try to distance ourselves from that and think differently? Yeah, so <clears throat> a very big question. I'm not sure I can answer that uh, fully. But um, as I tried to say in, in the beginning, um, the way current production and consumption systems are organized, um, it will not be able to, to happen on this kind of massive scale. Um, I mean, even um, just things like um, changing all um, uh, kind of... Um, combustion engines to electric vehicles. There's, I mean, that's highly questionable whether there are enough resources there to do it, unless we come up with some really innovative stuff that we can use some, um, some other things, or we increase the circularity of, of these to fully design out waste that we, um, but we are quite far from that. So, um, I mean, this links maybe to some other issue about um, consumerism as, kind of like a social economic system in which we all live in. So far, a lot of the automation, um, and I mean, it links to online shopping, um, if we look at Amazon. So this is kind of like an acceleration of this current uh, consumption uh, pattern. Um, and algorithms as such, they are like an acceleration of existing um, trends. Um, so, that's probably also going to push us towards planetary boundaries and resource availability. So this kind of consumer society um, is probably also something that needs to change. Um, if, and and here, here's the question whether the digital digitalization can facilitate like a dematerialization um, or social change towards um, kind of less resource-intensive lifestyles. Um, but yeah, that's... That's a big question, Tamishaw. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, uh, the education field, in as much as I've seen it dealt with, is kind of disappointing. The way it's dealt with seems very stylized and unimaginative. I mean, it, it is along the lines Kevin indicated of this sort of one stream that says you've got to have the skills, another stream that says you've got to have, you know, um, empathy and communication and all the things that machines can't do. Um, I mean, but it just, um, your question made me think there is also a huge um, civic education agenda. I mean, one of the things we haven't touched on is the impact of um, kind of social media platforms on news dissemination, political perceptions, aggregation, you know, collective action through that, which is obviously um, one of the, the sort of scarier areas. Um, and... I think if you want a citizenry that can deal with, um, you know, the way in which um, these platforms can be manipulated for money and for geopolitical ends, then that would have to be dealt with through the public education system. That's not something I've actually seen referred to at all in the literature. It's a really interesting point, so thanks. Why? 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 Why?
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that last point is just interesting because it hadn't occurred to me before. And when I'd read the stuff on education, I'd always found it a bit stylized and boring. So um, I think that's a really interesting kind of connection for the future. I'll definitely take that away. And just many thanks. A great discussion and thanks for the invitation. Much appreciated. No, yeah, same. Same as, um, as Andy. Uh, I also... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after, after having spoke about education in that way, I kind of realized I was kind of doing what I said I was against, which, which was this template thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that everything I said was a template. So, yeah, I need to kind of dig deeper into that. Not really. Yeah, just thanks for inviting me to join this. So I hope we can explore this yeah, further. Exactly. And maybe also some of you, um, I mean, this could be interesting topics for yes. term papers or dissertations. So if you want to explore that, we're happy to find a good question. Yeah. I just want to say thanks to everybody for some really great questions. And also in particular for... We've been thinking about this a lot in the digital cluster from lots of different aspects. But today I feel like my... A whole, it's like a kind of window's been opened and there's some whole new perspectives have been brought in, especially the angle on inequalities, thinking about the relationship with this, this whole issue around um, the circular economy and, and the, kind of, the kind of physical limitations we are going to run out of lithium. So good luck with your electric cars when that happens. And I just think this represents the best of IDS, really. So this is taking this multidisciplinary approach and saying, well, we need to research this from lots of different angles, not just because it's interesting, but because it's really, really important. It's really, really important for the future of our society and for um, our ability to live in a kind of just and sustainable world. So thank, thanks to everybody for taking part and thanks to the people online. And thanks to uh, my brilliant panel. Yes. <laughs>